Let's gather around. If you would, open up your, your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We have been working through the doctrine of providence. And examining this doctrine of providence, we've been reminded again and again that God is not the author of sin, and yet He makes use of sin, wickedness, evil, the corruptions of men's hearts to accomplish his good purposes. And, and so in that, we, we got to, in a sense, celebrate, here's, here's the, the amazing work of God in the midst of sin and iniquity. But we come to chapter 6, and we have to deal with the unpleasant subject, the unpleasant question from whence did all this sin and wickedness and evil come? What's the origin of all that we see around us, all that we wrestle with inside of us with respect to sin and wickedness and evil and corruption? And once again, I'm, I'm amazed at the Spirit of God and His work uh, and, and the, the work of providence to align our Sunday school lessons with the preaching text. Uh, it, it is, it's not by my design, but I'm not uh, organized enough or smart enough to accomplish that. But it is amazing. As we look in our text today in, in Mark, the end of Mark chapter 6 and, and the first half of Mark chapter 7, we're dealing with that question of where does corruption come from? Where does uncleanness come from? Where does defilement come from? And the Pharisees had one answer that was clearly wrong. Uh, and, and our Lord Jesus has an entirely different answer. But this morning, we're going to look at, at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, and the first part of the first paragraph in chapter 6. So our task over the next several weeks will be to look at the fall of man, of sin, and the punishment thereof. So we get to wrestle with lots of pleasant things about the nature of man. And, and so this will help us to establish a good solid biblical anthropology, and also we will be introduced to the topic of covenants, and particularly the covenant of works that Adam and Eve broke. So let's pray. Let's go to the Lord and ask for Him to send His Spirit to us, to give us an understanding of His Word, to give us a, a greater insight into our own human condition, and more than anything, uh, to help us to fix our eyes upon our Redeemer, uh, who God has promised, even in this very very early pages of His revelation to us in Genesis 3, promised to remedy our sin and iniquity. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You that You've made Yourself known to us. You are our God. You are a, a blessed God, a good God. You are a God from whom all blessings come. Your Word tells to us that in you is light and that all good gifts come from heaven. All good gifts come from you. And yet we confess that from us comes corruption, comes folly, comes sin, comes wickedness and all manner of evil. And apart from your active and ongoing work of grace, both common and special, uh, we would surely be far more wicked than we are, and we pray that you will help us uh, to reason through these things together. Help us to, to, 
to fix our eyes upon Christ and His Word and to establish all of our thoughts, all of our doctrines, all of our understanding of our human condition upon Your Word and its sufficiency and its authority. We ask this in Christ for our good and for His, His glory. Amen. Let's read together the first 13 verses of Genesis chapter 3. And actually what I'm going to do is back up a couple of verses into chapter 2 and, and get a running start. Beginning in verse 21. So the Lord caused, chapter 2 of 21, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So here, notice a couple of things. and I'm going to read the first paragraph in chapter 6 of our confession here in just a moment. But notice the very last comment that the Lord makes about mankind before the fall is that the man and his wife had, were one flesh, they were both naked, and were not ashamed. And then we go back to the end of 
chapter 1, the very last verse of chapter 1, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So when the sun sets on that sixth day, God declares everything is good. Now, how much time elapses between the sundown on the sixth day and Adam's fall into sin? Well, the answer is we don't know. But our strong suspicion is that it wasn't long. It wasn't long. Um, the serpent shows up in all of his deceit and he beguiles, seduces the woman and attacks, as you know, attacks the very heart of God's revelation to her. And so what we're going to discover in chapter 6, beginning in the very first paragraph, in fact, beginning in the first part of the first paragraph, is that the, the writers of the Baptist Confession uniquely, and, and I'll say more about that in a moment, but uniquely asserted that it was in this violation of God's positive law that man fell. And they want to make a careful distinction between moral law and positive law. Now, we've already talked about some of those distinctions, and I'll remind you a little bit as we go that the heart of the fall, the substance of the fall, the, the, the beginning of the fall, was an attack on God's special revelation, his positive law, not upon his, the natural law or general revelation, which was written on the heart of all men. So let's, let's read the confession, and then we'll make some notes on it as we go. I'm going to read paragraph 1 in its entirety, but our, our focus is really going to be just that first clause in the confession. And then we'll come back next week and, and consider more, more specifically the covenant of works that is referenced here, although not named explicitly. And we'll talk about why. Here's the, here's the language of our confession. Although God created man upright and perfect, he gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof. Yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit having purpose to order it to his own glory. There are significant changes that the Baptists made to this, to this paragraph in our Confession of Faith. One of the things that, that I've sought to do as we've gone along is, is to make some comments and comparisons with respect to the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration of Faith, and then the Second London Confession, because each of those documents are related. They are, in a sense, close theological cousins, and the language is often very, very close, if, if, and, and often even identical. But there are some places in our confession where the Baptists do make significant changes, and this is one of them. Now, it is not because the doctrine of the fall of the Reformed Baptists is different than the Reformed Congregationalists, or the Reformed Presbyterians. 
the doctrine of the fall is, is essentially the same. But the, because of the word, or in the choosing different wording, the Baptists were wanting to emphasize some very particular things that is stated only in a very general way with the Westminster Confession. So for example, if we were to look at the Savoy Declaration, they, the, the Congregationalists added two phrases at the beginning of the paragraph, and, and then one at the end, the Baptists pretty much rewrite the entire first part of this paragraph in our confession. Again, it's not a contradiction, it's not a repudiation, it's not a correction in any way of Westminster. It is an addition and a clarification. And the, the Baptists went even further in their, in their edits here. It was a change in order to focus more precisely on the true root and cause of the fall. And there are, there are implications for us if we don't understand the true root and the true cause of the fall. So I want to consider this under two broad headings. And the first is, is we'll consider only briefly, but also by way of reminder, the focus, once again, begins with God. And... Notice the phraseology, although, although God created man upright and perfect. Now, let's think about this. Coming immediately after some of the subject matter we covered in chapter 5 on providence, why do you suppose that the paragraph would begin with this word, although God created man upright and perfect? You want to hazard a guess? Um speculate as to why Matthew yes yes it is the fact that God is sovereign over even sin and evil and wickedness and this is tying back in with that that's, that's certainly true I think there's there's even if we could put even a sharper point on it, one of the things that we wrestled with in chapter 5 is who is responsible for sin? Who is the author of it? Who is the source of sin and iniquity? And so when we begin to talk about the subject of the fall, the writers of our confession want to vindicate God from the beginning. Although God created man upright and perfect, in other words, God did his job. There was no deficiency in man. God had not, there was no bug in the code here. There was no, there was no latent flaw that God had put in man, or that God had, or something that God had failed to put in man that led to the fall. So, what then is the theological conclusion? Who is responsible for the fall? Man. God is not the author of sin. Now, we've already confessed in chapter 5 that God's providence extendeth even to, that, to the fall, to the first sin. So God certainly ordained that. He decreed it, and he decreed everything that happened up to that, but God is not the author of sin, because God created man. Not only did he create man upright and perfect, so man's innate or inherent constitution, the, 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 the isness or the whatness of man was not deficient in any way. It was upright 
He was perfect. Now these speak to his, his moral capabilities. And not only is, is man essentially created in this way by God, he is, he's created morally upright and perfect, which means he is perfectly capable of, of fellowship with the triune God. He was able to walk with, with God in the cool of the day. He, he was able to, to, to commune with God without the constraint, without the defilement of indwelling sin. And not only did God create man constitutionally, or essentially this way, but also, or and also, he gave to him a righteous law. Which, here in the phrase, which had been unto life, or we might say, would, could have been unto life, or would have been unto life, had man kept it. So the focus here begins upon God. It's a reminder from chapter 5 that the fall and all subsequent sin is owing to the creature, not to God. Because God had made man constitutionally, essentially, morally upright and perfect. God made him capable of doing everything that God had commanded him to do. So, And we get this, don't we, even as, as, as parents. As, as sinful, imperfect, earthly parents... There are times in which we have given our children the necessary commands and even resources to obey us. We've recognized their own limitations, but we, we haven't asked them to fly to the moon. We, we've simply asked them to unload the dishwasher, to take out the trash, to clean their rooms. They have everything necessary to do it, but then when, when they fail to do so, the, the fault then is not in the parent, Mom didn't stutter, dad didn't leave out details, the instructions were plain and clear, and yet a son or daughter said, for whatever reason, chose not to do that. Well, that's on a very small scale. And of course, any, the best of earthly parents is, is not undefiled. Uh, we are not without our own corruptions. We are not without, because sometimes the failure is, because dad did not give clear instructions. Sometimes that is the, the, the case. Sometimes it is that mom has expected more than someone was actually, that a child was actually capable of doing. But that's not the case here with the fall. God has not expected something of Adam and Eve that they were not able to do. Nor has he given insufficient instruction to them as to what his standard is. Does that make sense? So when we think about the fall, the very first thing that we need that needs to come to our mind, just as we thought about with providence, we come back to the good character of God that has to govern anything we think about. Before we ask the question, what about evil? We have to start with the goodness of God. We have to start with how God has revealed himself to man, both by special revelation and natural revelation, that he is a God who is good, he is benevolent, he is gracious. And, and once again, we have to start with the good character of God that he is not the author. He did decree the fall. And his providential rule extends even up to the fall, or including the fall. But he is not the author of that sin. Now let's notice in the second place. So first of all, we notice that, that the focus here is upon God himself and the goodness of his creation and particularly 
the goodness of his creation of man, male and female. But the second thing we want to notice is that the root of the fall is a violation of positive law. It's a violation of the clear command of God. Now we see that, don't we, in in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent comes to the woman, and what's the very first thing that the serpent says? Matthew? Did God really say? I mean, this is, of course you know this, this is a a full frontal assault on God's word, on the authority and the sufficiency of God's word. Did God really say? And the woman answers initially in the affirmative, doesn't she? She actually, I mean, she says, well, yes, actually he did say this. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit, fruit of the trees of the garden. See, that's, that's a, uh, the risk of being facetious. That, that was a positive, positive law. It was a positive law in the sense this was a command of God, but it was also in an affirmative. You may eat. I mean, think about this. They're in paradise, and God has said to them, Everything here is yours. Of all the the overflow and abundance of my goodness, everything here that I have made that is very good is yours. Think about this. When when, um, Joshua and Caleb, along with ten other spies, were sent by Moses to spy out the promised land, remember that? This was before the 40 years in the wilderness. Remember, Moses sends them, and they're going to spy out the land, and they come back, and, and one of the significant things about their report, 10 of the spies said, it is a, man, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a wonderful place, but there are giants in the land. And of course, Jay, uh, Caleb and Joshua alone of the 12 spies said, it is indeed a glorious land, but there are, but, and, and we can take it. God will give it into our hands. But one of the things that they reported, just as one example of the fruitfulness of the land, was that it took two men to carry a cluster of grapes. Remember that? That there was such was the produce of that land that it took two men. I have this picture in my mind. Two guys with the, with the big stick, you know, almost like they're taking a, a, a deer home from the harvest. But instead, it's, it's a cluster of grapes. Now, if that's true, well, after the flood, in the land of Canaan, what must it have been like in Eden? What must have been available to them? Of all the goodness of God here, in tangible, juicy form. And Satan comes and says, God really say you couldn't eat of that one? Come on. I know all this is good, but that one tree, that's the one you want. That's the one that that will be most beneficial to you. And notice the things that the serpent says. Now, we know, of course, Eve adds to. She had a clear command of God, but she's already adding to it. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, she's adding to the word of God here. So just kind of peg that in your mind as we work through Mark 6 and 7 and the Pharisees uh, adding to the word of God. They weren't the first to do so. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. 
See, this is a direct repudiation of God's word. God says you shall, the serpent says you shall not. You shall not surely die. And then he explains, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, he's not telling her merely that you will now understand or discern what is good and what is evil. What he's saying is that, and the, the Hebrew makes this clearer, but essentially what he's saying is you will be like God in the sense that you will determine for yourself what is good and what is evil. You will be like God. Now what was Satan's sin that caused him to be cast out of heaven? I will be like the Most High. You hear the common thread? And so he is, he is, he is seeking to convince Eve, and, and he does so, that it is to her advantage to disbelieve God's word and to take to herself the place of God. And so that's the backdrop here. <clears throat> and then the woman sees the tree as good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now, if there was ever a sleight of hand, isn't this it? Here the promise is this, this will make you wise. But what does it actually do? Make some fools. Yeah, isn't that, I think I read that somewhere. Thinking to be wise, they became fools. And this is exactly what's happening here. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an exchange. And isn't that always what happens with sin, though? We think sin is offered to us as something that's good, it's profitable, it's good for us. And as the Puritans say, Satan always presents the bait and hides the hook. And here we have exactly that. So God created man upright, make, created him perfect. He was not lacking in any ability or faculty to obey God. And then God gives them a righteous law. God gives them the law that says, you shall not eat of the, free, of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So that's a prohibition, but he's also given them affirmative permissive, positive law, you may freely eat from everything else. I think there's something instructive for us, just as an aside, it's not in my notes, but for us as parents, as we think about this, to give to our, our kids both prohibitions and permissions. You know, you, you, you may do these things. You, you, you don't have to come and ask each time. You, you may freely do this. But there are other things that, in our home, we're not going to do that. And, and you must obey in those areas. And there are, God gives sanctions when his creatures, when his people do not obey. So God gives a righteous law. And, and notice that it was probationary. It was probationary. Now, when I first uh, was introduced to Reformed theology, and, and particularly our confession of faith, and was wrestling through some things like this, I, this was something that was new to me, that the period of time, and whatever this time was, we're not told, but there was a covenant that God made with Adam 
do this and live, don't do this, or do this negative thing and die, and that there was a probation here. And had Adam actually done what God commanded, had had Adam obeyed that positive law, Adam would have inherited eternal life. He would have merited it. He would have earned it. And it, it never occurred to me. This was a probation. This was a test to see if Adam's love for his creator would persevere. And of course, we'll never know how long it would have been, how long Adam would have had to maintain and obey God and, and, and walk in righteousness before him, before he would have earned eternal life. But we confess that he would have earned it. So there's a promise given to Adam. This is part of the covenant. And we'll say more about this uh, next week and maybe the week after as well as we introduce this covenant of works. But there, there, were, there were both positive and negative uh, commands and promises with this covenant. If you follow me in obedience, you will not only continue to live and draw breath in Eden, but you will gain access to eternal life. That was a promise of the covenant. It was a sure promise. It was a genuine promise. But also, if you transgress, if you sin, if you disobey me in this one command that I have given to you, you will die. You will not have eternal life. So there were sanctions. There was a threat of death upon the breach of the positive law. Now, all of this that we've just looked at is added to the language of Westminster. None of these things are in the Westminster Confession. And as I said, this is not because the, the Baptists are departing from the doctrine of sin held by our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. Our, our doctrine of sin and the fall is identical. But it is worded differently for a particular reason. And I think uh, Dr. Renahan is helpful here. And he argues that the, the, the Baptists make this change, they make this addition to create a more precise and even more obvious parallel with language that we've already looked at back in chapter 4. If you turn back to chapter 4, this is the doctrine of creation. Look at paragraph 3, this, this little uh, small, neat, tidy paragraph, but an important one. Chapter 4, verse or paragraph 3 says this, besides the law written in their hearts. Now what, what is that a reference to? The law written in their hearts. It's natural law, the moral law, it's that which was later written down on two tablets of stone in ten, ten words or ten commandments. But this is the works of the law that Paul references in Romans 1 and 2, where, or in Romans 2, where the, the, the obedience of the moral law is hardwired into man. It's written on our hearts. So besides the law written on their hearts, they, this is Adam and Eve, received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. So this, in addition to, it's not, when it says besides, it's not talking about separate from or contradictory to, but in addition to the natural law written on their hearts, there is also a positive command. Now, Renahan argues that this is to create a more, the, the language or the change in language 
at the first part of paragraph one is to make that parallel uh, more obvious. Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, that phrase righteous law is equivalent to a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we have here two different kinds of law set before us. A natural law or moral law, the law that's written on their hearts, it was not yet written down. It was inscribed upon the very heart of Adam and Eve. And then that is set beside or side by side with the positive law that God gave to Adam and Eve you may eat freely of all that's in the garden, but of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat of it, lest you die. So the Baptists here are asserting that it was not sin in some general or generic sense which was the cause of the fall. Again, it was not a defect in the craftsmanship. It was not something deficient innately or inherently in man. So there's nothing wrong with God's creation that caused the fall. So we eliminate that. It's also not the case that there was something deficient in the way in which God wrote the law upon the heart of man that was the cause of the fall. In other words, there was not some bug in the code that caused the fall. God gave a very clear positive command. That was the impetus for the fall was the violation of that very clear, positive command. It was a willful violation by both Adam and Eve of the positive law. Uh, we'll see as we look at here in a couple weeks at paragraph 2, our first parents, plural, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness in communion with God. It was both Adam and Eve that sinned. So the fall was the immediate result of a violation of positive law, which was also a breach of the law of nature, or the moral law. I mean, it, 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 was, it was, I don't want you to hear me saying it was not a violation of the moral law. It absolutely was, starting with the first commandment. But the origin of the fall began with a violation of positive law. It was, it, it, but it, and it, that led to or demonstrated their failure to love and worship God. Listen to, to Renahan. When law was employed in 6.1, the, the term law, it is parallel to the term command in 4.3. Later in 6.1, command is used synonymously with law. Both terms describe this object of the transgression. There is no semantic difference between them, you mean between the words law and command. The change in 6.1 harmonizes these statements, helping the reader connect the circumstances of 4.3 and 6.1. So that's the reason. I think it's, that's, the, that's a, a reasonable explanation for why the Baptists wanted to expand upon this. Again, there was not to, to describe a disagreement it was not to describe a, a conflict in doctrine, but rather to sharpen their pencil, as it were, or their turkey quill, and, and to put a, a finer point theologically on 
where the fall came from. It was not from God. It was not a deficiency in the Creator. It was not a deficiency in His creation. Nor was it a deficiency in the law which He inscribed upon their hearts. So what's the necessary conclusion? Who's to blame for all of this? Man, right? So that's, that's the effect of, of using this more precise language. It's really just to sharpen our focus before we think more about the doctrine of the fall is who's to blame? Who's to blame? It's man. Male and female. It's mankind. Now I'm going to close with this. This is a, a, a longer quote, but this is, I think, very helpful. It's from Nehemiah Cox in his work, The Discourse of the Covenants. And, and, and Renahan quotes him extensively here, and I think this is helpful. Their transgression, this is Adam and Eve, their transgression was actually completed by eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil concerning which the Lord had commanded them that they should not eat thereof. And this is Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, and with respect to this, let it be observed. He makes three observations. Three observations. That is, it was a breach of a positive law, it was, or I'm sorry, it was by a breach of positive law that mankind was lost. It was not because subjectively they failed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It was because objectively God had said, do not, and they did. You see, it was a breach of positive law that mankind was lost. This was the door through which sin and all the miseries consequent thereto invaded and by their entrance ruined this lower world. I mean, this one event had such unimaginable historical significance, cosmic significance, in fact, because all of creation groans like a mother waiting for to deliver her child. So this began with a breach of positive law. Secondly, in that man fell by the transgression of this positive precept, his breach of covenant with God was so much the more conspicuous. Inasmuch as this precept belonged not immediately and necessarily to the law of his creation, but was superadded thereto as a special term and condition of his covenant relation. Now, we haven't, the confession hasn't yet used the term covenant. In fact, some have even gone so far as to say, well, the Baptists deny a covenant of works because it doesn't actually say covenant here. But um, Dr. Rich Barcellus introduced me to, a, I don't think it's original to him, but the, the, the phrase word-concept fallacy. You ever heard of that? Word-concept fallacy. And it's this idea, because a word isn't present, that means the concept isn't present. So, as we've looked at the doctrine of providence over the last several weeks, we can make the word concept fallacy with the whole scriptures. Because you can look in your concordance and you won't find the word providence. In all of your Bible, you won't find the term providence. But surely the concept of providence, the doctrine of providence, is all over the scriptures, right? And so we could make the fallacy and say, well, because the word isn't there, the concept isn't there. Well, here we could say the word covenant... And, and the phrase covenant of works isn't here. Therefore, the concept 
isn't here. But, but that would be a wrong conclusion, right? Uh, it would be a wrong conclusion to, to, to think that these things are not here. When we, when we see a positive law, we see sanctions if you violate the positive law, and we see promises if you fulfill the promises of the positive law. Well, what is that? Well, that's a covenant. That's a covenant. And it's a covenant of works. You do this and you live. You disobey this and you die. Well, that's by definition, that's a covenant of works, not of grace. Last observation from Nehemiah Cox, or a third observation. The breach of this positive law doth suppose and necessarily infer a violation of the eternal law of his creation. This transgression was a total apostasy from God, and in it all conceivable wickedness was included, even the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He references 1 John 2.16, says, Yea, all the villainies that to this day have been or ever shall be perpetrated in the world are the genuine fruit thereof, and upon a strict search, its aggravations will be found to be unaccountable, meaning innumerable. And so what is he saying? Well, this, this, this whole sad state of affairs begins with a violation of positive law, which means it is a transgressing of a covenant that God had made with man. And, and also, necessarily, because it's a violation of positive law, then it is also a violation of the moral law. Because we cannot violate a clear command of God without betraying our lack of love for Him. Without misrepresenting His name. Without hindering our worship of Him. And without going into or, or transgressing whatever other category of moral law that was placed before us. We, we could make the, easily make the argument that they also transgressed the fifth commandment. They did not honor God's authority. Eve transgressed the fifth commandment by not honoring her husbands. Adam transgressed the fifth commandment by not being a faithful husband to her. We could go on and on and on and to see the implications of this. <clears throat> so this is a description in, in seed form of the covenant of works. And beginning next week, we'll consider that more particularly. But the takeaway for today is, is to take note that the editors of our confession wished to reinforce again their justification of God. That God is not ever, nor, how, nor shall he ever be, the author of sin. There was no deficiency in his creation. There was no deficiency in, the, in, in man. There was no deficiency in the command that God gave to man. God didn't stutter. He was not unclear. He was not insufficient in his instructions. It was man who violated the clear command of God and by doing so participated in a total fall. Um, by rejecting both positive law and moral law, um, man expelled himself from true fellowship with God. And so we'll pick we'll we'll, we'll stop there for today. We'll pick up next week, looking at 
the implications of this, this covenant of works and, and how this is, is, is sort of introduced here in, in concept form and worked out <clears throat> in other places in our confession, really throughout the rest of the confession, uh, with respect to man's relationship with God. Any, any other questions about this, Gina? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you, well, you, you probably have that written in there because that's the term I would prefer, is a state is innocence. Um, I, I, I don't have a problem with the word perfect. It, it is, in, in a moral sense, he was, man was perfect. He was fully capable of obeying the command. He had everything within him necessary to do that. And so he was upright and perfect in that sense. Um, there is, uh, I'm trying to remember where, uh, I think it's in chapter maybe 16. I don't recall exactly. The, 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 the confession does use that state of innocency, that same phrase, state of innocency. And so those seem to be used interchangeably, innocent and perfect. Um, and, and perhaps it's just a flaw in my own thinking, but to me, the word perfect impli- necessarily implies immutability. Um, that not only is upright, but without the ability to change. And so we would say Christ was perfect, God is perfect, because of the immutability. And so that's my only reservation with the term, but... Um, I, I think you probably have it in your notes because that's I would prefer the term innocent, but there were um, there were there were this was a statement about moral capability is is why the word perfect is used and in that sense Adam really was perfect there, there was no deficiency in the way in which God made him and so again the fault is owing to the creature not to the creator. Matthew? Mm -hmm. So the question is, in Genesis 3.3, Eve's addition to the Word of God, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The question is, is there significance here that the Spirit of God wants us to know, I think it's, it's a caution. I think we want to be careful not to go too far in terms of, of ascribing additional sin to Eve, or even preliminary sin to Eve, that the Bible doesn't. So we don't want to say that her legalism was the first sin. But I think there is a caution here for us as God's people. Uh, and I'll, I'll echo that both today and next Lord's Day in our sermon text, the, the harm, the, indeed the danger that comes when we add to the Word of God, either positively or negatively. When we add a shall, where God has said shall not, or when we add a shall not, when God has said only shall, uh, we run the risk of, of doing harm uh, to the name and reputation of God and His Word, but also uh, to our fellow human beings, our fellow image bearers. So... I, I think there's a caution, but there's um, 
we, we want to be careful not to add um, a sin before there was a sin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, minimizes the liberty, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, you've got, who knows, thousands, tens of thousands, who knows, of, of trees and good things. And, and the, the serpent zeroes in on this one thing and says, yeah, but you really don't have liberty. And, and that's, we, we see this in our own, our own hearts repeatedly, don't we? Of all of the good things that God has given, and, and, but we will fixate on the one thing that we think we should should have that we don't have. Amen. Well, let's pray. We've got a, just a few minutes before we'll gather to worship. Our gracious and good Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are our Creator. You are, are our Maker, and You have withheld no good thing from us. We confess that our, our sin justly and rightly belongs to us, that we alone are culpable, we alone are condemned, and justly so, for, for sin. Both that, that sin of, of indwelling nature and the sin of, of active commission and neglect of duties. Father, I, I pray that you will help us not only to, to grow in our, our doctrinal understanding, but to grow in our devotion to you that you are the God who has rescued and redeemed us from such a precipitous fall from fellowship and communion with you. I, I pray that you will help us to begin to grasp how, how deep and broad the reconciliation that we have experienced with you through Christ truly is. Um, but we can only know that after we have a sense and an appreciation for how deep and broad the fall has been. As we ask for your help, as we think about these things, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will help us to apply these and meditate upon these truths for our good and for your glory. We ask that. Amen.